Artsville, Artsville, the happening town where art abounds. Artsville, Artsville, from Asheville town where art abounds. Artsville, Artsville, feeling mountain high and inspiring North Carolina. That's where you'll find us, amazing artists and designers. Oh yeah, Artsville from Asheville. Welcome to the Artsville Podcast, where we celebrate American contemporary arts and crafts from Asheville, North Carolina, and beyond. This is the podcast where we tell you how Asheville became Artsville. I'm Sourdough. I'm one of the producers of the show, the founder of Crew West Studio, and I'm joined with my friends and colleagues, Louise Glickman and Daryl Slayton from Sand Hill Artist Collective in Asheville. How's it going today, guys? Are we excited about today's episode? Very much so today, yes. Our favorite topic. River Arts District, coming at you. Yes, it's rad. <laughs> well, it's rad because we not only are we talking about River Arts District, but we're talking about the Village Potters. Yes. They, they are phenomenal. They truly are. I mean, I've never met such an inspiring group of artists who are so entrepreneurial and innovative in their whole approach. Well, Sarah Rowland and Lori who I guess are the two heads over there, but they have an amazing team of potters, teachers. I was very fortunate to work with them and the Center for Craft to bring in a whole group from New Orleans of young students who came and spent a week there. It's amazing. Their work is outstanding. And actually, they're just one example of hundreds of studios and great artists in the River Arts District. True story. I mean, when I was lucky enough to visit the River Arts District in Asheville, I ran out of time. I mean, there's you literally need several days to visit every studio that is so densely packed with amazing artists, artisans, makers, craftspeople and their studios. Yes. And it's getting bigger, too. Well, and it's getting bigger because now they have the marquee. What is it? Almost like a bazaar, if you will, a marketplace of, of artists and makers. And tell us about Marquee, because that's new. And Sandhill Artist Collective has a booth there as well, promoting Artsville. It's the Artsville booth. Look for Artsville. But how is Marquee going so far, guys? Marquee is, is like 50,000 square feet. And essentially, it's an enclosed open air street fair, in a sense. Amazing. Would you describe it that way, Louise? Well, I think it's styled as a European indoor market. It's not mm-hmm. really open air, although there will be access to places to, of course, drink beer. Yes, and there will be access Well, that's to a very important well. detail, Louise. <laughs> right. That's the only the thing that makes art market. better than it already is is beer. I mean, everyone knows well, this. And also 12 Bones, which is the most amazing barbecue joint in the world, maybe, but it's world-renowned anyway, and it's right across from Marquee. But it's not really a booth. We have a gallery space in there. It's fairly sizable, and it's brand new, but it is being branded as both a gallery and a community space for artists, because what's going on there thanks to our relationship with Crew West LA, is that we will also have guest artists 
my work, Daryl's work. We will have art discussions. We will be doing some of these wonderful podcasts from down there as well. So at any given time, there'll probably be five arts or crafts people shown in this space, plus meetings and gatherings. Absolutely. Well, I'll tell you what, I can't wait. I haven't been to, because the marquee, when I was there, marquee was under construction, so I didn't get a chance to see it. And now you guys are in it and it's there, it's all happening. And so I'm excited to get out there and see it. But I mean, I just love the River Arts District, period. And one of the things that I was sad about when I was there, I mean, I didn't get a chance to go to the Village Potters space. And so when I get back out there, I, you know, I get this double pleasure of like going to Marquis, seeing our space, the Artsville space, along with the other countless vendors and meeting Sarah Rowland in person and meeting all the other Village Potters, because, of course, Sarah's interview that we're about to get into is just fantastic. She's such a sweetheart. She is. Absolutely. We adore Sarah and she is like an emissary. I guess, or an ambassador. <laughs> yes, yes, the, the ambassador, the rad ambassador. Is that what we're saying? She's, the rad ambassador. She's the most <laughs> radical ambassador of ceramics I know because she loves, loves teaching and does such an amazing job. And I have to say, at a more foundational level, Asheville, of course, is first a crafts artist's place to live and work. Mm-hmm. And she is very much at the top of the tier of ceramic artists. But we've talked about Penland. There are lots and lots of ceramic craftspeople here in this area. And Penland is one of the most important schools to learn ceramics. And then you come into Asheville and follow up with Sarah Rowland. So one, wow. two, punch. It did. I tell you what, it's an embarrassment of riches, isn't it? And we are so grateful and so lucky to have Sarah on today and have this robust conversation with her as she takes us through the journey and tells us her story of the Village Potters there in the River Arts District. So shall we get into it? Let's yes. do it. Let's do it. All right, guys, here we go. Sarah Wells Roland, welcome to the Artsville podcast. Well, Scott, thank you so much for having me. I am thrilled to have you here. Sarah, for our listeners out there, let's start at the very beginning and tell us who you are and what you do. Well, I am a professional potter and have been for over 30 years. In my early 20s, I started making pots and within two years of learning, started a business and it has been my career ever since. I make functional pots, and for many years, I made pottery that was designed for the home and the kitchen. In the last 10 to 15 years of my career, I have moved far more into the art end of ceramics and spend a lot of time at this point in my career teaching and mentoring emerging artists. Well, fantastic. Well, thank you for that. There's so much information right there. I want to start to unpack and better understand. You talked about becoming a professional or being a professional potter. In a very simple way, people might say, well, a person is professional if they're getting paid for their work. Okay, fine. That's maybe a low bar. (laughs) What does it really take to become a professional potter? I mean, there must be very specific techniques and skills and benchmarks for a potter to achieve, to be able to say, yes, I am a professional potter. Help me understand that journey. I'll do that. 
So basically, a professional parter or anyone in the arts is an entrepreneur. And so we balance two things, our creative energy of making our work and also running a business. So when someone says they're a professional in their craft or in the arts, that really means that they're running a business as well. Most arts businesses, the artist wears all the hats. That's an expression that we use where we're handling our marketing, we're handling our bookkeeping, we're handling our way to network, our purchasing of supplies, and the whole process of selling and getting the work out the door. So to do it as a profession Yes, it is your income, but it ultimately means that you have got a fully, fully developed business in the arts. Wow. You do wear a lot of hats, don't you? As a professional, as a business owner, right? But talk a little bit about the making of pottery and the technique and just the journey as a craftsperson, as a professional potter. Okay. So I'm a neophyte. I've never thrown clay whatsoever. And let's say, you know, I wanted to become a professional potter in this late stage of my life. You know, the old saying about 10,000 hours, what should I expect to do and to achieve if I, as a beginner, want to become a, a professional potter? Oh, it's a great question. So I think this is probably true in most mediums, but I know it's true in clay, that it takes many, many hours. 10,000 hours might be an understatement to really master your medium. So I would say that on the average, a potter can be making quality work in three to five years, probably really discovering identity and voice in their work at seven years. And so there's a lot of time invested. It's a life's work. Making pots is the absolute best part of what I do. Mm. Being in the studio in the early hours of the morning, me in the clay, a little music playing, and just getting at the wheel and creating. Whether it's something that I've made before and I'm kind of in a rhythm and a repetition of making those pieces and creating a kind of a flow in my work energy, or whether I'm creating new work, which is a harder thing to do because you're problem solving and doing a lot of design and editing of pieces. That is the best place for me to be. And I do all the other things just so I can do that. Amazing. What an incredible journey there and and that iterative process of getting to a place where you can actually start repeating and replicating a work again and again in a consistent way. That level of consistency, I guess, might be a hallmark of a professional potter. Yes, it is. I think there are two types of potters. There are people that really want every single piece to be different and every single piece unique. In my opinion, it's harder for them to hone a masterful skill set and it takes a lot longer because repetition is such a great teacher. But I wouldn't say that all potters work in a production style, but most do. And most do it for several reasons. We love the energy that flows from there and work evolves and changes during that cycle of making the pieces. But also there's a way to begin to find rhythms with clay and really understand how to move and shape different forms by repeating forms over and over again. Mm-hmm. And you said something to me earlier about your own journey, and you were talking about 
in terms of now you've made the functional items of the pots and the cups and the, you know, and now you're starting to make more, I think you said art forms, which to me as a neophyte speaks to sculpture and sort of more, I don't know, well, certainly less functional, but more sort of aesthetically sort of pleasing objects that lean more towards maybe fine arts versus functional arts. Talk a little bit about that transition away from function into form and your journey into art. And how are you feeling about that right now? How is that going? That must be a very exciting evolution for you. It is. And I think like most people who have done one craft or art avenue for 20 or 30 years to where we are now is the most exciting time. And I can certainly say that for me because I have a skill set now to where if I can think of it, I can make it. And so I throw forms and transform them and sculpt them and shape them into human forms. I've been exploring a lot with doing female forms in different stages of pregnancy. Oh my gosh, they're Mm. just gorgeous. I am doing all kinds of different atmospheric firings where you take the form that you've made and you put it in kilns where what's flying around in the atmosphere, whether it's wood ash or soda ash, lights on the side of the pot and you really don't have any control. The atmosphere controls what happens to the piece. I'm really enjoying that. Having established my career with functional pots where I really, people knew my work and it was out there in galleries. It has afforded me now this liberty and this freedom to move as an artist and really just let my work move in all kinds of directions as opposed to funneled in one direction. I'm just at my prime. It's the best season for me as an artist. Oh, the joy and the passion and the energy is clear in your voice. It's just coming through. You you kind of want to dance right now, I think. I, I get the sense that if yes. you can stand up and dance, you would. <laughs> yeah, and we do dance around here for yeah, time, I to bet. time. <laughs> I bet. Well, let's talk a little bit about the Village Potters, your organization there and your studio. Um, obviously, I can sort of see the background there a little bit. It looks like a, a, a big space, a fantastic space. But I understand that the Village Potters is actually quite an innovative business model as well. Talk a little bit about or talk a lot about the beginnings of the Village Potters, the evolution and the great work that you do there yesterday, today and and going into tomorrow. Okay. Well, I love to tell this story because I think that we are quite exceptional. Uh, The truth is in 1998, I had worked alone for a couple of decades and all of a sudden I got lonely. And I think that this place birthed originally out of loneliness. I was working at home in my studio, which was below my house. And I had for years all by myself. And I had this revelation that if I continue doing this, I'm going to be in solitude most of the time for the rest of my life. And I have a network of amazing friends. And so I had this idea to create a shared collective that we would come together with our equipment and what we have and create a shared studio and gallery space and education. I was already traveling and teaching and hosting workshops in my studio The studio mates that joined me were already teaching. 
And I said, I know this is radical. We met at a friend's house and had dinner together. And I said, but what if we just cash it all in with our home studios and go do this thing together? And so that's what we did. And my husband and I kind of hold the lease and hold the ownership of the business and the responsibility of the loans that it took to make it happen. But we as a collective, the group of potters, are who make this place work. And we make it work by meeting every week, sharing in decision, sharing in marketing. Just everything that's done here within this core of seven potters is done in a shared and supportive way. We have a saying around here, we're as committed to each other's success as much as we are our own. And that kind of uh, culture really makes for a supportive and encouraging environment. So we're both a capitalist system where we're all trying to make a living and make our incomes, but we're also kind of a socialist system where we give back and share everything that we have. There's really nothing that we are not willing to share for the other person to prosper. Well, and you're teaching people how to fish. We really right. Are. You have this educational aspect. Sure, we can come in and buy your fish, <laughs> buy your buy your creations, but you have this educational arm that also teaches other people how to make their own pots and throw clay and so on and so forth, which is all you know gets to paying it forward and giving back and supporting the community writ large. I mean, talk about the educational aspects of what you do there because that's such an important piece. Well, I think it's the primary piece to what we do here, because what we do as artists, we all came in already doing. But what we do in education is unique and wonderful. And we really, the idea that I had was to found it and base it upon something that has been going on for centuries, for thousands of years, which is where a master craftsman teaches and gives all their secrets to the ones that they're raising up. And that's what we do through teaching and mentoring. We have a saying around here that we're not only committed to making really great pots, but we want to make really great potters. And we do. We have this list of amazing potters that have studied with us that are now out there professionally making it on their own, making original work. It's easy in education in the arts to raise up people and teach them how to imitate your work. But that is not what we do here. We help people explore creatively who they are and find their voice in clay and their unique work. So we teach how to explore and discover new glazes, how to stretch and explore forms. And so what happens, and we've just been amazed at the success of it, is that people find that and they find their voice and their original work. And we're just so proud of them. We didn't know going in. We were slightly terrified. Could we actually even do this thing? But we have found that because we cast that vision, there's an, an original work inside of you. And between you and me, we're going to find it and pull it out. And we have a team of mentors that work with these emerging potters. And they do. They find their voice and their beautiful bodies of work. It's just a delight to do. Wow. I want to sign up for a class today. Unfortunately, I live across the country. <laughs> that sounds amazing. 
There's one potter here, Judy Harwood, who's one of the resident potters, and she makes more potters than anybody here. She'll teach beginning classes, and I don't think she'll ever stop because there's something that happens, and she has such an energy and love for clay, and it's translated over that many people change their career trajectory. We've had people, I mean, maybe it's good, maybe it's not, but we have had people with PhDs stop their career (laughs) and pursue being a potter. We have had people in the medical field stop their careers in marketing fields and just take a class with Judy. And before we know it, they're in our advanced studies program a few years later and have a plan to be a professional potter. Wow, Judy's quite a special human being, eh? She is. She's exceptional. Yes, she is a gifted, born-to-teach potter. Yes. She's a good case for cloning, right? We want we want to clone her and make yes, more of her, we right? we sure do. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, it's oh, really fun to do this. And one of the things that has really motivated us in our mission is that higher education now is so expensive. And it's not easy to set up a pottery. I think probably minimally you would need fifty to $60,000. It's not like an easel in a box of paints. And so people that are serious about it, we have to equip them with what it means to be in business. So we teach that as well. And there are so many creative ways to sell your work and market your work. And we help people find their way that fits their lifestyle and their personality. Well, this is a really interesting point that you're bringing up, and I wanted to get to it eventually, but this is such a good segue, so we might as well chat about it now, which is, it is, and you talk about the capitalist system versus socialist system and how you have a kind of a hybrid culture there. At the end of the day, it is about paying the bills and paying rent and putting food on the plate and shirt on our backs. And it seems like you guys have done a wonderful job of embracing business in a real way as a professional. You go to art school. They don't teach you business in art school. Artists have to come out of art school and sort of learn it on their own. And you guys are thriving, uh, it seems. And so you've sort of alluded to some of the marketing and marketing initiatives that you have. I believe you even have a retail store, correct? Don't you have a retail space? We do. We are actually, our facility now is 14,000 square feet. And so we have a large gallery that has four showrooms. We have a teaching center classroom where we teach classes with local people. Then we have a large studio dedicated to our students who are studying to be professional potters. We call it our advanced studies program, and it's based on independent study and mentoring. And then we have our studios. We have a clay supply company. And then the room that I'm sitting in is a hands-on workshop space, and people come from all over the country and the world to do hands-on workshops here. But during this season that we're in, I'm teaching online. And so right now it's set up as a media center for online teaching. I love it so much, I don't think I'm ever going to stop, frankly. I just discovered it. So it's a large business. We started with 5,000 square feet and now we're 14,000 square feet. I think one of the reasons we're successful, one of the primary reasons, well, I'll give you two reasons. One is when we started, we were already successful businesswomen and we are Mm. all women. And so we already had been through the school of hard knocks and we know well how to try new things, evaluate it throw it out or tweak it or change it 
or run with it. And so the first five years of this place, we were constantly doing that. And so we had an advantage. The other thing that really worked well for us is every single one of us probably worked too much. We love to work. And so that really is one of the keys to success in entrepreneurs, I believe, is that you have a passion for your work. And we all do. Well, Sarah, thank you for that. We've obviously spent a good amount of time celebrating you. We've, of course, talked about Judy and the amazing human being she is a little bit. Let's talk about the other five women that you work with there at Village Potters. Talk about the human beings, the the wonderful human beings that comprise Village Potters, the seven women who are there. Let's honor them and talk about them and explain a little bit about who they are and, and their work. Scott, I would love to do that. So I'll start with Lori Terrio. Lori Terrio, like Judy Harwood, is one of the founders. In other words, she was here from the day we opened the doors. Lori has a background working in theater and also spent time as a studio manager at a major pottery in Washington, D.C. before she moved here. We were so glad that she found us and approached us when we were opening. She now is our director of marketing. And when I talked about our socialist system, that is something that she does for the village. She is somewhat compensated for it. But she gives of herself freely and has done that job since day one. And she is an exceptional potter who is also a fabulous cook. And her niche in pottery is she makes work that's custom for the kitchen and for serving. In a lot of her work, she calls her business Crazy Green Studios. I guess I need to say this. The Village Potters is like an umbrella for our businesses. And so she has Crazy Green Studios here on location. She has a second location too because it's so successful. And she makes custom wares for very special restaurateurs. And these chefs serve on work that she makes that's just specifically made for their restaurant. And she's got a booming business in that. And it's called Crazy Green Studios. She also has an art line of pots that she makes that's called her Vincent series. And she carves those pieces using lines and textures that you see in Vincent Van Gogh paintings. They're just fabulous. So she's one of our core founders. We have Julia Mann, who I actually went to school with in the 80s, and Julia is a functional potter, true to form, and I call her a master potter. There is nothing that Julia can't make. If you give her the idea, she can make it. If she has the idea, she can make it. And she's a superb technical teacher here, and she teaches a lot of the intermediate and advanced throwing. She is a very detailed person. I have a skill set like hers, and I'm a very flowy person. So we make a great team. And sometimes, like right now, we're actually co-teaching a class together. Julia has been making pots for over 40 years. Then we have Chris Henry. And Chris Henry is what I would call an emerging artist. She took her first pottery classes here. She's been an artist her whole life. But when she took a pottery class, which was many years, you know, 20 or 30 years, she was an artist. And then she touched clay and it changed everything. And Mm. I just happened to substitute teach in a class she was in. And I did this two-dimensional wall piece project. 
And what she did in that class was so much better than what I demonstrated. I just like had my eye on her instantly because she's so highly creative and slowly began to talk with her about considering becoming a professional potter. Now she's one of us. She went through our advanced studies program and she has been invited on board. And so she is a full-time resident potter and probably, I'm guessing, but maybe has been for three or four years now and makes really wonderful hand-built pottery. Then we have Katie Maley Messersmith. And Katie came into the village about three years ago, already very skilled, took some advanced studies with me, and I encouraged her to apply for our apprenticeship program. And I had my eye on her almost immediately to join us. So we've been a growing group over the years. And in the last few years, we realized we need young people on our team. Well, Katie's young. She's in her 20s and she can throw anything. And she found the most beautiful original body of work while she was working here. And just this year, she has joined us and we're so thrilled to have her on board. Ruth Rutowski is just now joining us as well, and she's going to be a seventh. We've been five to six potters our whole time that we've existed, but now we've added her as a seventh. She's a very established potter who lives north of here who, like me, got lonely. And she was like, Sarah, can I rent one of your incubator studios upstairs or do the ISM program? That's independent study and mentoring. And I said, Ruth, you're too good to do that program. No, you can't do it. Why don't you consider joining us? And she just did. And we're so, so excited to have her. So we have Lori Terrio. We have Judy Harwood. We have Julia Mann. We have Chris Henry, and we have Katie Maley Messersmith. Now, the other person I have to mention is Lindsay Mudge, because we are a woman's run business, and Lindsay is our director of operations, who is also a potter, but her passion is this entity and our mission. So she hardly ever makes pots, but as the owner of the business, she is a gift from God to me because she handles all the day in and day out operations of what's going on here so I can do the things that I was created to do. And she keeps us sharp and running well. And that's the group of women. There's one man and he hangs really well with women. And that's my (laughs) husband. And he is just retired from technology. He was a director of technology at a college here in our community. And he has done all the building. He does all the kiln repair, basically anything that needs to be built or fixed. We call on George and he's happy to do it. Oh, my goodness. I, I feel like we have a reality show in the making here. The, you know, it's like the, all the characters, all of the drama and the excitement and the, you know, oh, it's such a, a exciting community of artists that you have there. But I, I, I'm wondering, Sarah, do you think the Village Potters could exist anywhere else outside of other than Asheville? I mean, could the Village Potters To what extent is it a product of Asheville and could it have happened anywhere else? You know, that's a really good question. At one time when this place started really prospering, I entertained for about 10 minutes the idea of having them in other cities. The only reason we didn't move with it is because nobody can work anymore. 
than we already do. And we knew that it would be kind of a radical, crazy thing. But I do think that the way that we have evolved, the River Arts District, where we're located, Riverview Station, the building we're in, the owners of this building and how supportive she has been to us, the amount of people that come to Asheville specifically because of the arts are huge building blocks to our success. I don't know the answer to that, Scott. All I know is I'm really glad we did it where we did because we are having the best year we have ever had. And it's just because of we're on the shoulders of people who did a lot of work before us here in this area in the arts. Well, give us a little bit of a history lesson there in terms of the River Arts District. And for the listeners who maybe don't know Asheville or don't know the River Arts District, I guess give us a present day summary, if you will, of what one might expect to find in River Arts District and what does it consist of? And you've mentioned some of the amazing buildings or some of the wonderful uh, attractions, but also go back and help us understand how the River Arts District became what it is today. All right. Well, I'll just give a brief overview of what it is now. And what it is now is absolutely remarkable. We have about 21 old warehouse buildings that had different purposes, which I can share in a minute, that are literally filled with artists. And the artists in these buildings are working every medium you can imagine. And you have everything from the emerging artist to the mid-career established artist to the master artists. And we have such a strong sense of community here that I'm going to guess that there's more than 200 artists in the River Arts District. Mm. When people come here, one of the things that I find is they expect to see something they're used to, like a mall where they can walk through and see all the arts and the artists. But there is no other arts community like the River Arts District in Asheville, North Carolina, because it happened organically. And so these buildings are huge. They're interesting in their own right. And to go from one artist studio to another, it's unique in every single building. So it's like I say to people when they're in our gallery, you have to be prepared now for an adventure. This is not like all the things are just going to be laid out in front of you. You're going to go on a hunt and you're going to find every corner you turn around, you're going to find another incredibly unique and wonderful space because artists make their spaces differently. Their workspaces are different. Their galleries are different. You go around the United States and galleries kind of have a common look to them. That is not true in the River Arts District because these are artist-owned galleries. So their galleries are as unique as their work. Some people you're buying right out of their working studios when you're getting their art. The paintings are hanging right around their easel when they're painting. So it's such a unique situation. And the buildings, every single one is different. So our building that we're in is 120,000 square feet with multiple entrances, multiple levels. And there's over 60 artists just in this one building. We happen to be in the largest building in the River Arts District. They were all originally in the early 1900s, things like warehouses for textile, 
cold storage buildings for ice. They were feed and seed stores, general stores, old textile buildings. The building I'm in was originally a tannery, and they made leather here. There's another painter's studio over on Depot Street that was where the leather was then cured. So there was all kinds of industry that was here that basically the flood of 1916 devastated, and some of the industry came back, some of it didn't. And so the area that is now called the River Arts District sort of thrived. And then when all the industry left the country in the 70s and the early 80s, these buildings were abandoned and there were several investors into the buildings that started renting to artists and they slowly moved into what was seriously dilapidated buildings. I mean, they were in rough shape, but artists take things and repurpose and make things new. And that is what happened in the River Arts District until now, when you come to an arts building, you see beautiful, beautiful real estate. And so it is a unique and original place that has transformed. I think the first collective marketing that the artists did in the River Arts District was in like 1994. And they did what was called stroll because at that time, artists were using these for studios, selling their works to galleries and traveling to do shows. And they weren't really selling their wares here. So they would just sell out of their studio twice a year. These strolls became huge events. People came from all over the Southeast for what was called the River Arts District Studio Stroll. And as a matter of fact, our annual stroll is this coming weekend. And I'm saying thousands of people come. And that started originally just one of those original, you know how studio strolls are like the thing now? You go to any town and there's artist studio strolls. I don't know that it didn't originate right here in the River Arts District, the whole idea of it. And it's been going on for years. Somewhere around that time in the 90s, the artists of the district became organized and became the River Arts District artists and began to pursue more and more doing things together in marketing and becoming more of a community connected and supporting one another. Now it's just literally a thriving, thriving arts community. Scott, people come from all over the world and visit the River Arts District and interview me asking and others in the district, how can we do this where we live? And the interesting thing about it is it happened organically. It's not a nonprofit. It wasn't built by people that had a vision. It really has evolved over decades into something that is just absolutely marvelous. Wow. Thank you for that. I have so many questions. (laughs) Governance is you sort of alluded to governance in terms of how artists have come together to help market the River Arts District and maybe manage and create the strolls and things. Talk a little bit about how that governance has been formalized over the last many years. I mean, is there a River Arts District Association that has a board and and artists sort of handle these things in a democratic fashion? Uh, Talk a little bit about how the artists help to govern and support and manage the district as a community. 
Oh, yeah. Thank you for that question. So, yes, there is an organization. And I came to the River Arts District in 2011. And I like to say I got on the train of success right before it left the station here in the River Arts District. And I immediately joined the board because I wanted to get my finger on the pulse of what was going on and give back to what was going on here. And I'm so glad I did. They were right at that time organizing into a 501c6, which is kind of like a nonprofit organization, but you don't really have many nonprofit benefits. I don't understand the structure of it. But it's very organized and there's bylaws and how you vote and there is a board. I will say in our arts community, our board is much like a church. About 4% of all the people do all the work. (laughs) And and I don't think that that's ever going to change. But they work hard to recruit new people to hold the torch for a couple of years. It's very exhausting work and you dedicate a lot of your time and your work as an artist gets put a little bit on the side when you do it because there's a lot of work involved. But we've always had wonderful boards and those people have an organized monthly meeting. There's agendas. Things have to be voted on. I believe we need a 51% vote on board members and policy changes to the bylaws and things like that. But the board does the lion's share of the work. We have a tour guide and a map, and we have advertising that's done for stroll. We have sign making, all these kind of things that are done. And it's the board that does that work. Now, there are some artists that own buildings in the River Arts District that constantly work for the creative community. So I don't want to leave them out. Patty Torno, who owns Curve Studios, who is also an artist, she works constantly for the River Arts District artists and for this community with the city of Asheville. The ladies, Helene Green and Trudy Gould, that own the building I'm in, They do everything to support their artists and the arts community. They are just huge supporters of the arts. And I don't think this building would be what it is if it had a different owner. And I think if you talk to people in other buildings, you would find that to be the case. So the board does the work, the artists show up and keep doing what needs to be done. And then we have huge support by building owners. Well, that's fantastic to hear. And the excitement that you build through your marketing efforts, the events that you have through your production efforts, whether it's the annual stroll, what have you, folks that come to Asheville must at times feel overwhelmed, right? Because there is so much, there's so many artist studios, there's so much art. For our listeners out there, Sarah, who maybe they've never been to Asheville, Maybe they've been to Asheville before and they felt overwhelmed. I mean, what advice would you give our listeners out there today? They're planning their trip to Asheville for the first time. You know, we've got a new year coming up, 2022. Maybe they're looking at coming to Asheville. What advice or recommendations could you give them about when to come and how to approach navigating the artist community there, which is so robust and so packed with goodness? Oh, it's a great question. And I think that it depends on the person. So we tend to, when we're talking to people, we try to find out why they're actually here. Are they just curious about art and artists? Or is there some area that they're interested in? So if they say to me, 
I just love pottery. I just would be sad if I couldn't see all the potters. I immediately whip out our map and show them where the hot spots are, where to go to see ceramics, where to see clay. If they're lovers of painting, we pull it out and show them how to plan. The guide is so perfect because you can plan according to medium. You don't have to go see every artist. If you know you're adding to your jewelry collection, you can tour the district based on jewelers. But if somebody's just here checking it out and they're just going to be in the arts district, we just say what I said earlier, relax, enjoy the adventure, explore as long as you can, plan to come back again. And if you see something that you just adore and you can't live without it, support the artist and buy it because you'll never regret that you have it. And so I don't know that it's possible to really see everything in a day. I don't think you could really take it all in. So if somebody was dedicating one day to the River Arts District, I would suggest they relax in it, not worry about seeing it all, and come again. That's great advice. Thank you for that. So you mentioned the stroll. You mentioned how thousands of people come that weekend. I'm guessing it's a weekend. When is that? What time of year should people come to tour the River Arts District? Obviously, you're open year round. It's not. (laughs) Let's be clear. But is there a time of the year that they should either focus on coming or avoid altogether? Maybe there's a time not to come. Well, I don't know that there's a time not to come. There may have been in the past because people would kind of close off their studios when it was real cold and not necessarily be open to the public, the private one-person studios. But that's not much the case anymore because the economy is thriving so well here. But stroll, if you're going to come and stroll, you're coming to an event, There's trolleys that'll drive you around from building to building. Otherwise, the buildings are not just crammed up right next to each other. It's about a two-mile radius to explore. But there's lots of people. So if you are into a sense of energy and lots of people and fun things going on in that way, then you should come for stroll. And it's this coming weekend. It's the second Saturday and Sunday of November every year. If you really want a quiet, meditate, looking at the art, taking it in, maybe meet the artist, get an opportunity to talk with them, that might not be the best weekend because that is a big event weekend and the artists are going to be really busy with the crowds. So I think it depends on the purpose. I've noticed in January, February, and March, the coldest months of Asheville and probably the quietest time in the River Arts District is when we have so many serious collectors that come to town. And I think they come then because it's really a time that they can interact with artists and see all the work without interruption. Mm. Oh, that's great advice. So I'm guessing you're going to need a vacation after <laughs> after this week or two, because you're going to be very busy over the next week or two, aren't you? Yes. We always need a vacation, don't we? Everybody? Yes, indeed, <laughs> you get indeed, back from a vacation and you need a in, vacation. Indeed, indeed. Well, this causes me to wonder about those listeners today who are out there and they're collectors of art. Maybe they feel really knowledgeable around collecting a certain kind of art, whether it be photography or painting, but maybe they're new to pottery, they're new to ceramics. 
What advice could you give or would you give to somebody out there who maybe they're looking to add to their collection? Maybe I'm sure they love the functional stuff and that's fine, but they're really more interested at this point in terms of collecting ceramics and pottery as an art form, but they're new to the space. So what advice would you give them or recommendations to discern where they should consider putting their money in terms of buying pottery and ceramics to collect? Well, that's a really great question. And I think it's actually a complicated one because some people say, we'll buy my work because I have an established career and it can increase in value at this point. I don't make as much as I used to. There's like this, it's more expensive than others. Why is it more expensive? Well, it's because it's where I am in my career. And sometimes people will buy because they're actually building a diverse collection. I really try to encourage people to buy what they love. And when they're pursuing it, to ask about it. How was it made? Why was it made? If they see something that they perceive as strange or an imperfection, ask a question about it. Maybe the artist isn't technically doing something well, but maybe it was intentional. And the artist can explain why they did what they did, where the pot has some asymmetry to it. A very symmetrical person could look at that and go, I don't understand why it's wider on this side than that side. And those are wonderful conversations. But I always come back to buy what you love, buy what you're going to want to live with. Art adds so much to your life, to your experience, to your home. So make sure your collection is adding to that. It's creating sacred rituals with pottery in your kitchen. It's creating beautiful negative spaces in your home when you put a beautiful vessel there. The color and imagery of paintings on your wall is something that you delight to see every morning when you have your coffee. That's what I encourage to collectors. So what are the hallmarks of great pottery? Oh, that's a super question. So I think there's several things that I look for. One, it needs to be executed well. And not everybody can discern that, but potters can. And potters can talk about what they do when they're making their work and where they take their time and detail that it's executed well. Even walls, a nice balanced foot, balanced to form, something point of interest with the form, what draws you to how it fills a space, where it's going to live. All those things are so important. But also, why does it stand apart from other pots? What is it about it that makes it different than what you could get at, say, your local department store where they have commercial-made pottery that you can get and put into your home? Why is there something unique about what the hand did in shaping this pot? And so those are the things that I think I look for is, is the work original? It's not easy to make original work. Not everybody can do it. There's a zillion pots out there that look the same. And is it original? Is it exciting? Is it going to serve its purpose of the person that buys it? Is it going to do the job that it has to do, whether it's to be art or to be used? Thank you for that, Sarah. That is fantastic advice. And I'm guessing 
that whether it's you or Lori or Judy or Julia or Christine or Melania, all of the other potters that are part of the village potters all exude these kinds of attributes, whether it's originality or precision or what have you. But if I'm a listener to this podcast and I can't quite get to Asheville, can they buy your work and your colleagues' work on the website? How can people purchase your work if they can't be in Asheville? Well, that's a great one. Normally they can. We are so thriving right now. We're having a hard time keeping our gallery stocked. So if you go to the website right now, you see on there that I'm getting ready to have pots come up in November, but I don't have anything to put up there. So I'm probably going to have to take that down. But normally I would say go to our website, look at the website and then click shop online In 2022, we hope to have pots up there again. I think we have a few up there, but it doesn't really represent well the huge array of work that we have. What we're trying to do right now with people, if they can't come and they're really, really interested, email us, we'll set up an appointment, and we'll do a virtual walk through the gallery with them. And I can't tell you how many pots we have sold just by appointment holding the phone and showing people pots, large pieces, small pieces, wedding gifts, just doing virtual walkthroughs because we are just, you know, a potter can only make as much as they can make. And so we're just in a great season right now. But I want to say something that speaks to your question. And that is, we the village potters are exceptional. There are a lot of exceptional potters in the River Arts District. Our next door neighbor, Akira Satake, is a wonderful Japanese potter, makes work with beautiful Japanese aesthetic. We have artists in ceramics on the other side of the district from where we are in Odyssey Ceramic Center there. Beautiful pots to see. And it's the same way with painting. It's the same with fiber. You'll go into one place and go... I cannot believe this. This is the most beautiful things I've ever seen. And we'll be like, you're just getting started. I mean, because (laughs) the community is so large that it has attracted really, really excellent and original artists. Well, and that's kind of a blessing and a curse too, isn't it? I mean, what it speaks to in terms of growth. And and I know there's been a lot of challenges with growth and development and gentrification in Asheville. I mean, are you seeing that impacting artists in your practice? I mean, how does that, how does that impact your practice or does it? Well, so far gentrification has been to our advantage. There's been a multi-million dollar project that is now completed that beautified everything outside the River Arts District, put up wonderful signs to find your way around, directional signs and ways to find the different arts buildings. It's made the adventure easier. Do we have concern? Yes, a lot of concern because, you know, once a place gets many, many millions of dollars put in to ramp it up, investors come in from afar and start buying up the real estate. And that has begun. And so we are hoping that the owners of the buildings in the Arts District will hold fast to the vision for the Arts District. We're hoping that somehow the Arts District will not be lost in gentrification, but it really is, for the most part, out of our hands. There are several buildings in the Arts District that are owned by artists. 
And so we'll just see what happens. But it is a genuine concern. So Asheville is such an exciting place. I mean, I've been lucky enough to visit once, unfortunately, only once. I look forward to coming back. And I was so delighted and charmed by the community, by the town. But as a newbie, it was overwhelming to navigate. And and I did find my map, which was hugely helpful. But there's great restaurants and, you know, there's great nightlife and there's things going on there that I just scratched the surface, right? So for our listeners who are looking at Nashville and planning on coming to Nashville, kind of a related question, but maybe a little off topic. Sarah, what are your three favorite restaurants in Asheville that people should take note of there? What recommendations would you give them for dining out in Asheville? Oh, that's a great question. I am a creature of habit, so I'm probably not the person to be asking. But I think right now I would say one of the restaurants that's really unique, it's kind of a little hole in the wall. It's called Salsas, and it's right at the top of downtown Asheville on Biltmore Avenue. And it's owned by a chef that mixes a kind of Hispanic, Mexican, I mean, and Caribbean cuisine. And Mm. when you eat there... I don't know. The food experience is food I've never had before. And I love it every time I go. So the name sounds like Mexican food. You go in and there's empanadas and things that sounds like Mexican food, but it's not. It's a completely unique experience. Then we have an incredible restaurant on Lexington called Oh, I always say it wrong, but I think it's Mela's and it is uh, Indian cuisine. Oh, oh my gosh, that restaurant never disappoints. I almost feel bad saying three because there's so many restaurants. (laughs) But right behind us in the River Arts District is an iconic place and it's called Twelve Bones. And it is a barbecue place that is over the moon. I have to pretend it isn't there because it's within 200 feet of our back door and I would (laughs) die of a heart attack if I ate there every day. But Barack Obama ate there more than once. George W. Bush came through and ate there. The presidents hit it. It's a hole in the wall. It's in this cool old building, one of the warehouse buildings, and the food is to die for. And so we try to discipline ourselves and not just regularly do lunch, but they do ribs and they're so successful that they aren't even open on the weekend. It's a Monday through Friday business and they don't even fool. All their employees get the weekend off. So 12 bones, you got to put it on the map. If you come to Asheville, you just have to go. Sounds like a cash only place too, because if you have that kind of success, you have that kind of moxie to be able to say, no, no, no cash only. (laughs) Well, don't say that out loud because they haven't thought of that yet. (laughs) Right. Well, thank you for that, Sarah. No, I appreciate those recommendations and I too will enjoy them when I come back to Asheville. And Sarah, I want to be respectful of your time. You have been so generous and so lovely in terms of sitting down. I know you've got a big stroll to plan for, so much going on. You have a vertically integrated operation there that is all things world-class pottery, from the making to the supply, the making, the retail, and the education. You do it all there at the Village Potters. Thank you so much, Scott. I have really enjoyed this conversation. Well, me as well. Sarah, will you please come back and talk to us again someday? Oh, I'd be delighted to do it. Fantastic. And before we sign off, please tell everybody where they can find you online. 
Okay, so we're at thevillagepotters.com. Just remember there's a the there and it's plural, thevillagepotters.com. And you can get all the information that you need about us right there. If you're interested in the whole River Arts District, just go to riverartsdistrict.com that you can see all of us artists in the district on that website. You can read about the history of the River Arts District. You can see our map about the River Arts District. So be sure to go to that website as well, the riverartsdistrict.com. And our website is thevillagepotters.com. Well, thank you for that, Sarah. And thanks again for your time. You have a wonderful afternoon. Thanks, Scott. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Artsville podcast. Please make sure to like this episode, write a review, and share it with your friends on social. Also, remember to subscribe so you get all of our new episodes. Artsville is produced by Crew West Studios in Los Angeles in partnership with Sand Hill Artist Collective in Asheville, North Carolina. Our theme music was created by Dan Ubik and his team at Danube Productions. Artsville is edited by We Edit Podcast and hosted by Captivate. Thanks again for listening to Artsville. We'll be back soon with another inspiring episode celebrating American contemporary arts and crafts from Asheville and beyond. Artsville. Artsville, the happening town where art abounds. Artsville, Artsville, from Asheville town where art abounds. Artsville, Artsville, feeling mountain high and inspiring North Carolina. That's where you'll find us, amazing artists and designers.